welcome to The Apostrophe, a podcast on all sorts of entertainment, TV, movies, probably some music, books. Books. Books, yeah. We read those. All sorts of stuff, whatever we feel like. I'm Caitlin O'Brien, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Katepi. That's me. All right, so for our very first episode, I guess we're just going to, first of all, kind of introduce ourselves and talk about what sort of things we like to watch or listen to or read and and where we're coming from. So, Bill, do you want to kick it off first? Oh, sure. Where do you come from as, like, a viewer, a listener, a reader, like, your baseline likes? Like, so, for example, like, I I know that with movies, you are really into, like... I am a new Hollywood guy. Yep, there we go. Yeah, when it comes to movies. Um, We used to, in the room where we're podcasting from or in, uh, we used to have a bunch of posters of great new Hollywood failures. Um, One from the heart. uh, They all laughed. I'm forgetting now what was what was up there. Uh, Heaven's Gate? But, um, you know, Paul Mazursky, um, Hal Ashby. Altman. Uh, Robert Altman, yeah. Uh, especially the stuff from that era. Um, the Long Goodbye, California Split, um, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, Bogdanovich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, all the, all the new Hollywood stuff, all the stuff when um, it was sort of, I don't know, indie-ish, but with a Hollywood budget, with a yeah. studio budget, I guess. Um, when uh, leading men didn't look like leading men, when, yeah. when Elliot Gould could lead a movie. I mean, everyone was sad and wore ugly clothes. They weren't all sad. Bob and Carol and Ted <laughs> and Alice is a, is a good example of a, a movie that I like that I maybe shouldn't or maybe isn't justifiable (laughs) Um, that's why i led with mazursky um (laughs) because uh when i when i lead with mazursky it's not because he's my favorite director but i I think because that's maybe the most characteristic like the most um the i don't want to say outlier but the one that um the less common director Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. among the ones i love everybody loves altman yeah Yeah. and in terms of tv shows well first of all when we talk about the TV super fans of the house, we, we sort of say like that it, each one of us is a super fan of a specific show, not necessarily in that it's our all time favorite show, but that we've just seen so much of it and we oh. have retained enough of the trivia. So for Bill, that would be friends. Yeah. Which doesn't really <laughs> fit with the new Hollywood thing at all. Well, but it's, it's all of a piece, I think with the type of TV you like to watch, right? I don't know what it is about friends. Actually. I think it, it, it that's one reason I haven't blogged about it. I think it would be very hard to explain why I love friends. It's a multi-camera um, sitcom in the tradition of like Mary Tyler Moore show and your beloved is eight is enough eight is enough is not a sitcom oh (laughs) (laughs) I do I do love eight is enough I do love eight is enough eight is enough is it it sort of shares a genre genealogy with road to Avonlea with seventh heaven Oh, oh okay 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 um you know, but it, but the focus is maybe more on the parents than the kids. Okay. To some... But Friends is probably more like a lot of the other shows you like, like Taxi. Yeah. WKRP. WKRP. One Day yeah. at a Time. Mad About You. I feel like all of these shows are objectively better than Friends. 
I don't know about that. One day at a time is not objectively better than friends. No, but it was more daring. It was more like, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm backing myself into a corner here. We're just Um, talking about talking about what we like. I was just throwing out some ideas because I know you. I know. I know. I do. I do love friends. I do love friends. I think I love the things friends was able to do despite being a blockbuster hit. Yeah. We'll talk. We can talk about. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, I'm sure there'll be a whole Friends episode. Nothing else. Okay, maybe, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think so. But I also love. We're only talking about the sitcoms that I love. Sure. TV wise, I also love. You know, um, John from Cincinnati Mm -hmm. and um, Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman is still a sitcom, but it's a different kind of sitcom. Yeah. Uh, Sapphire and Steel. Mm -hmm. um, Breaking Bad, obviously. Battlestar Galactica. Uh, this this podcast was almost called Streets Ahead, a Friday Night Lights <laughs> podcast. I was fighting hard for that until I discovered there is another Friday Night Lights podcast out there. It's not called Streets Ahead, and it sucks. Um. Shots fired. <laughs> we're, we're already making enemies on our first episode. <laughs> There's more than one Friday Night Lights podcast out Fuck there. Fuck so you, no, other Friday Night Lights podcasts. No one has to know which one I'm talking about. We hope you die. <laughs> we wish nothing but evil on you. No one has to know what I'm talking about, but it, it dissuaded me from having a Friday Night Lights podcast. And Streets Ahead would have been great because that would have also referenced our love of community. Yes, which is the show, a not the actual show. concept of a community, which we which actually I don't reject. Like very much at all. Yeah. That. Uh, I I'm big into comic books. We both are, but uh, I'm I'm much more into the superhero stuff. I think that you tend to only read the superhero stuff after I foist it on you. Yeah. Um, I sort of I let you pick out the highlights. I'm like, just give me all the killer, no filler. Yeah. I, yeah. I only want to read the ones where Superman's shooting a tiny Superman out of his finger, or you know, th- things like that. The I, stuff that transcends the genre sometimes. Yeah, I can't I I can't slog through issue after issue of. That said, Superman, uh, Superman's new power, which is Superman souping, uh, souping, souping, <laughs> Superman. He's, he's souping the shit out of everyone. <laughs> Superman <laughs> shooting a, a tiny Superman out of his finger, of whom he is later jealous, which is really, that is really the most important part of the story. That is not an example of a story that transcends the genre, just to no, be clear. No, that's a very genre-faithful um, story. Yeah, but we read a lot of the indie-ish stuff, yeah. or at least non-superhero stuff. Um, I love Charles Burns a lot, and Jason. We've been reading Saga. We just yep. got into Saga last yeah. year. We're big, deconic fans. We love her. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, that's a good example. Her Captain Marvel run is a good example of the superhero stuff that does transcend the, the genre. Yeah. And I would put Dan Slott's Silver Surfer um, in the same league, although I don't think you've read it yet. Yeah. Your turn for All the right. intro. All right. So as you might have detected from the fact that I didn't know what kind of show Eight is Enough is, there's a, a mild age difference between me and Bill. So Minuscule. Minuscule. <laughs> so Bill is, I guess you could say, a young Gen Xer, and I'm an old millennial. So between us, there's about a seven-year gap, but that gap is just enough to have created some divergence in what we grew up with, what we watched, what we see as like the standard TV landscape. Um, 
and uh yeah so like or you know even even differences like when friends debuted to, to return to bill's super fan status to friends i was in what seventh grade so you were in college <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that so, never stops. So we approached we approached yeah. some of these things very differently. So like when Bill grew up watching Three's Company, and I grew up like seeing it sometimes in reruns or on TV Land or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so we have very different sort of feelings and, and allegiances towards certain things. But then by the time we sort of hit adolescence and adulthood, there's a convergence in, in terms of what we like and what we watch. Um, so to go back to movies, I would say. Um, I'm a huge fan of 30s and 40s screwball comedies, um, musicals up until they died when Bill's preferred mode of cinema killed it. No, it it also tried to bring it back with one from the heart. (laughs) Made the world ugly and sad and said there's no place for fantasy and illusion in, in this world. I think there's a lot of nostalgia in the new <laughs> Hollywood movies. I, I think uh, the Last Picture Show has a lot of nostalgia mm-hmm. for for that. I uh, uh, What's Up Doc? Mm-hmm. I okay. I love What's Up Doc. Okay, that is the perfect marriage of sure. New Hollywood sure. and Screwball. Yes, that's one of my all-time favorite movies. And I'm just being kind of an asshole about it. I'm just teasing Bill about it because <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's fair. And that's fair. And <laughs> and that is also part of what killed New Hollywood. Yeah. So you're not wrong. <laughs> Um, but, you know, as far as movies go, too, I mean, I think when I really started to get into movies as an adolescent and an adult, like, appreciate them on a, on a different level than you do as a kid, because I love musicals from, I mean, day one. My mom raised me on them. Um, but as an adult, you know, I started to get into darker stuff, not just comedies, but, like, my mom was like, why do you always want to watch such sad, horrible stuff? Like, I saw Dancer in the Dark in the theater, and... <laughs> And sobbed in the now closed uh, Lowe's Harvard Square, RIP. Mm. Many, many fine memories made there. You know, I'm that type of person who will queue up all the most depressing documentaries on Netflix. Yes, you will. <laughs> but um, also, um, another thing that Bill and I have in common is that we're both huge Lynch fans from way back. Oh, yeah. I Twin Peaks, and again, this is where... Uh, this is where our age gap does again affect our how we interpret and, and come to these things. Twin Peaks debuted when I was in second grade, and Bill was not. No. <laughs> and it was interesting because I'm from the Pacific Northwest. Bill's from New England. Uh, coming from coming at it from the Pacific Northwest, you know, I remember it being this. Obviously, it was this huge phenomenon everywhere. But in the Pacific Northwest, it's like, it us. <laughs> yeah. It's our show in a way that some people also put northern exposure in that category as well and i don't accept that first of all it's far it's just a a far inferior show but it was just like look it's our trees it's our it's our you know it's our fog it's our mountains it's our coffee shops it's us um so i was sort of aware of it as a phenomenon but um obviously it was on after my bedtime so i wasn't allowed i didn't really watch it until uh they re-ran the whole series on bravo in the mid 90s so I think I was in eighth grade or so. And I think that was, didn't they re-air it on Bravo with all the Log Lady intros? Yeah, yeah. Which I didn't was really see cool. the Log Lady intros until then. Yeah. yeah. So, like, it was weird because I remember in third grade for Halloween, one of the teachers in my elementary school dressed up as the Log Lady. Huh. It was, like, that that big of a deal. Yeah. My parents, you know, they watched it every week. Um, but as soon as I was a teenager, my mom 
rented Firewalk with me and was like, you have to watch this. And same with Eraserhead. I think I watched that a few weeks later. Um, and then, you know, saw Mulholland Drive in the theater. I think that was the first Lynch movie I saw in the theater. And yeah, I think after that, it was just pretty sure I've seen all of them. Um, I'm sure you have. Yeah, my first serious academic paper, uh, serious paper in college was on David Lynch. So I saw everything that was currently available at the time, including the hmm. shorts that were on, on video cassette yeah. at the time uh, for that. And that at the time, that was before the straight story had come out. But but I've, I've yeah. seen everything that's come out since then, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we both, I, I definitely, but we both have a very high tolerance of and, and love for surrealism in cinema, but also um, directors who are not just meta for the sake of being meta, but they clearly reference a lot of old TV, old cinema and music because they really love it. Um, and I think Lynch is one of those particularly where it's like, oh, he's referencing that song or that, you know, old paint and play soap opera format or things like that. Um, in terms of other TV shows, I think I have maybe a bit less tolerance of or attention span for some of the sitcom-y fluffier shows. Um, Bill, you know, having worked uh from home as a freelancer for longer than I have is more used to having TV on as a background. Um, so the way we do it is um, I sort of let him be the first pass for TV shows like that. And then if he's like, actually, this is really good. I think you'd really like it. Then I watch it too. But I have also tended to veer toward more of the like hour long drama shows or comedy drama. So like Carnival, one of my all-time favorite TV shows. Yeah. Deadwood, oh my god. Uh, could have gone on forever as far as I'm concerned. I would never have gotten sick of it. Things like that, um, which is not to say I don't appreciate comedies, but things like, for me, they have to be like the best of the best. Um, otherwise, I just get bored with them. So like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, Community, um, even, you know, we both stuck to Community faithfully, even the seasons that were not... Was it was it just one season um, that Dan Harmon wasn't there for? Yeah, it was. But then cast members started. To yeah, leave. I, I would say it had two amazing seasons. Yeah, um, two Hall of Fame seasons. Yeah, um, and then we haven't rewatched third season yet. I remember yeah. it still being strong, and then the decline begins. But then also, there's a lot of stuff on TV, not so much movies, but TV that I just that just kind of passed me by because from 2004 to 2010 uh, I lived in Australia and I didn't have cable and there's just some stuff that you just don't get there um, from America because if it's not been successful enough has run long enough they're not going to spend the money to pick up the international rights to re-air it so there are so many times where Bill is like do you remember this thing this show or or this you know run of SNL and I'm like no, I don't. <laughs> it was during my Australia time. so Or when you were a baby. Or when, or when I was a baby. Or, sometimes you know, it's because you were a baby. Sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time it's because I was living in Australia. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that sort of establishes a baseline of where we're both coming from. Oh, and of course, the superfan status. So Bill's the friend superfan of the house. I'm... The Simpsons superfan, and I qualify, of this house. I certainly, there are way bigger Simpsons superfans out there than I am. 
I will say that I am a pretty tough competitor in the Simpsons edition of Seen It. <laughs> and, you know, there will always be all these conversations like, I'll be like, oh, I love Jeff Albertson. And Bill will be like, who's that? And I'm like, that's the comic book guy. That's his name. Yeah, Respect I, him. His I name is Jeff Albertson. He has a name. You just said it. And I don't remember it. <laughs> We're like, Apu's last name is Nahasapima Pedalon. Like, what? <laughs> I've, I've forgotten already. And at the same time, Bill will come out with friends quotes where I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, that, yeah. What is that? <laughs> and he'll be like, Joey said it on Friends that time that he started the chicken farm in Mexico or something. <laughs> it might have. Did they go to the zoo? Supposedly. Supposedly. All right. So, yeah. And in terms of books, comic books, you know, I, I think Sandman obviously oh yeah swamp thing swamp thing yeah bill got me into that um hellboy you were uh, already an alan moore fan that's yes. why i got you i'm swamp promethea may be one of my all-time favorite graphic novels. and series. you got me into promethea yeah that's one of the interesting things about yeah. our alan moore fandom i think yeah. is that i grew up reading swamp thing yeah and hadn't read promethea because i just stopped i think that was i think it came out at a time when i just wasn't reading comic books yeah like um, Oh, four or oh five, somewhere around there. Early I probably didn't either didn't live near a comic book store or didn't have a car. Yeah. So there was a long time before digital comics where, you know, if that was the case, you weren't reading comic books. Yeah. Some stuff I caught up on in trade paperbacks later and some stuff I didn't. And that one had not been on my radar or I had read a couple of issues of it or something. But it's really something where you need to read it a volume at a time yeah. to, to understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, I sort of approached Alan Moore from the like, I'm a magician who worships a snake god. Like that's, I I eat that shit up. I love it. Whereas I knew him as the writer of Watchmen and Swamp Thing first and then followed him through to that. And and my first awareness of him as a public figure, I think, was around the time of From Hell. Not, Not the movie, but the comic book. Yeah. And uh, because that that was accompanied with ample notes, and so you sort of got right. a sense of his persona from that. Yeah. Um, I didn't grow up reading the comic book press, really. Mm. So. Um, and like as I said before, you know, Mike McNola, Hellboy, BPRD, love all of it, all of it. All right. So I think we've talked enough about that. We've established the, our theoretical framework. Yeah. <laughs> so if you didn't like any of that shit. You just You're leave. Not listening now. You just leave now. So we're, I mean, particularly now because we can get to the real. You know, we can. We might as well just make more enemies now. So many of the podcasts out there, and I again, I sort of rely on Bill to be the filter because I'm like, nah, I don't, is that worth listening to? Nah, I don't want to bother with that. Um, there's so many podcasts out here now, which is just like younger millennials than I, which is all of them, um, who are just like, let's watch this crazy show. And what's this? I don't remember. What's that? Yeah. A landline? Yeah. Who's who's yeah. that? Tawny Katayan. <laughs> what is a Patrick Duffy? <laughs> don't don't even get the whole episode will be about my hatred of young people. If, if we, if we, if we so we're sort that. of we're not approaching from that angle. I mean, we we try. I think we try to balance the nostalgia and the interest in the past and the love of the past with trying to stay current with interesting new things. So, um, not falling prey to presentism, but also um, not being obsessed with nostalgia and 
And I think part of the idea, one of the things we were talking about, after we moved on from the original idea of, should we do a podcast about a show? Once we moved on from that to, let's do a podcast about stuff. I think we said specifically, let's focus on things we love. And we love a lot of stuff. Yeah. That may occasionally mean talking about stuff we love that disappointed us. Yeah. Because when Twin Peaks comes out, I'm not assuming Twin Peaks will disappoint us, but we're I think we're going to have to talk about Twin Peaks. Oh, I when the new Twin Peaks yes. comes out. Yeah. And there's a chance it's going to come out and it's going to disappoint us or it's going to perplex us or, you know, in a way we don't like or something or it's going to let us down somehow. There's there's always a chance of that. Um but that's different from hate watching or yeah. you know, podcasting about a show that you're only engaging with so that you can podcast about it yeah or this, that kind of thing like life's too short there's too much good shit to enjoy and think about and talk about that you know that's just not our thing we're only going to be talking about stuff that we would be watching or reading or listening to or whatever even if we weren't podcasting yeah it. i guess that's yeah. important and with that we want to talk about the new Gilmore Girls episodes um, and also talk about our recent viewing of Rogue One. Yeah. Why don't we start with Gilmore Girls? Yeah. Um, now, I got you into this. Yes. I'm, I want to point that out because people are going to assume <laughs> it's the reverse. Yes. You sexist bastards. Yeah. I thought you were calling me the sexist bastard. No. No. Um, yeah. I had been into the show. I had seen the whole series at least twice before watching it with you. Yeah, I, I had seen it first run. I don't know if yeah. I had seen all of it just because life. But then I, I had certainly seen all of it when it was rerun constantly on ABC Family. Back when it was ABC Family. It may have yeah. been Fox Family at the time. And then uh, when I found out you either hadn't seen it or had no. only seen some of it. I hadn't seen it really. I mean, I think it started... What Did it start in 99? I don't know. 99 or 2000. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I was ending high school or just starting college by the time it was a thing and i don't know i know it started in the wb years and moved to the cw along with veronica mars either way for me it would have had to have been something where i would have had to have made a weekly appointment to like watch it in the common room of my dorm and uh it that wasn't appointment television for me um, and I didn't like the girls I knew who were into it. So I just assumed that because they were terrible, also the show was terrible. And that's not fair because I know so many good people who like it now. Um, that know, that no said, terribleness is an important concept in this conversation, which we'll come back to. <laughs> but, but first, since I introduced you to it, I, let's lead off by starting yeah. about your first impressions of the series not not the netflix series but the original series when when we binge watched it sure so i should say before i started watching it my preconceived notions were that it was sort of like a a precious twee cutesy show that's sort of up its own ass and is like oh it's a mother and daughter who talk really fast about clever stuff all the time and yeah and it wasn't like that at all i i was so I was so pleasantly surprised. Like, Bill was like, it's so good. It's so good. You have to watch it. So I was like, all right. All right. I'll give it a few episodes. We'll see. See if I like it. And it's great. I mean, certainly there is occasionally that aspect of the writer, in this case, Amy Sherman Palladino, really, really loving her own jokes and her own cleverness. Um, See also Joss Whedon. um, Yeah. Where it's like, I wish you had just pulled that back a little. Um, but overall, I mean, aside from 
the the wit, the quirkiness, whatever. What was really what really pulled me in is just um, the setting, the characterization. Um, even though in the end, probably Lorelai and Rory are some of my least favorite characters in the show, and I think it's a strong enough ensemble show that that's okay. You can still like the show and really think that Lorelai and Rory are just a couple of assholes who need to shut up. Well, and one of the things, I have to preface this by saying that even though Caitlin assures me it is not audible, uh, I grew up with a speech impediment as a child, and both Rory and Lorelai <laughs> are names I trip up on. <laughs> and so I, I may pause when starting to say either of them. Um, but even though both of them are, are a couple of assholes, yeah. for the most part, in most seasons and in most episodes, I'm still invested in what happens to these yes. assholes. Yeah, totally. And not in the same sense. I mean, we could do a whole episode on the handling of assholism in television. But um, <laughs> because the example I always use to contrast other shows with is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. They're not always sunny style assholes. No. <laughs> where you revel in their assholism. Right. You regret the kind of assholes they are. You don't want yeah. them to be the kind of assholes they right. are. Um, but you, in my case anyway, I, I do still stay invested in what happens to them. Yeah. I wish they weren't such assholes. I wish they were better people. I wish Lorelai was a better mother. I wish Lorelai was better to her mother. Mm -hmm. I wish Lorelai was a better friend. I'm gonna slam on Lorelai a lot here. Actually, in the re in the revival, Lorelai is not nearly as bad as Rory. No. Um, but but I do want things to go well for her. And for instance, I really root for Lorelai and Luke. And yeah. I got really pissed about the Lorelai and Christopher business. Oh, I hated that so in much. In the final season and the very end of season whatever the last yeah. Sherman Palladino season was, season five? Five, I think. Season five, I think. Yeah. I think season six was the last real season yeah. before the Netflix season. Yep. So it's an interesting version of assholism. Right. because And it, it's also one that is, um, you know, as I said, Bill grew up in New England. I grew up all the way across the country in the Pacific Northwest. And... It's a culturally different type of assholeism than I grew up with. You know, I think all of us sort of Americans, that is. <laughs> Who else matters? Um, <laughs> I think Americans, particularly, we sort of underrate how big our country is and how many distinct cultures, regional cultures we have in it. We just sort of think like every other place is like the place where I live. And it's not. Um, this type of you know old money families who've been in the same place for 400 plus years um this very new english focus on appearances um is very different to what i grew up with i i think certainly bill sees the same problems i do and has the same issues with them i do but that particular idea of that that rich assholeism where you grew up privileged you grew up knowing that you're a big name in this town and you can get out of any problem and that you can get anything you really want the whole idea of like trying to rebel against that in name but then getting pissed when you don't get all the privileges of that when it suits you like that just is a completely alien concept to me 
Like, it, it just doesn't, it's like, what what the fuck? You're, like, you're rich. Stop complaining about it. Just go, like, you want to be rich and not be a bad person? Then, like, you can do that. But sometimes I think that Lorelai and Rory both, they get the worst of both worlds. They say no to most of the money and the problems that that could solve. Um, but they still expect the benefits of their privilege to save the day more often than not, you know, whether it's helping Rory get into a good school or bailing Lorelai out of a financially strapped situation. Um, there's this whole, this phrase that runs through my head every time we watch it, especially the later seasons, this whole thing of like, but I'm a Gilmore. Like, but this doesn't happen to Gilmores. And that's something that Lorelai kind of makes fun of Emily about, but she totally feeds into it and relies on it. And so does Rory, especially in the later seasons. Rory. Fucking Rory. Fucking Rory. <laughs> so there's a lot going on with Rory. Obviously, there's a lot we can talk about here, but the main thing is her arc as this, what, young 30-something. She's got to be yeah. 30. She's like my age, so she's 34. 30, is she that old? 34? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess she's that old. You know what I mean. Is My point is that <laughs> she's acting very young. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is what I'm saying. Yes. So the, the fact that she's 34 is fucking crazy yeah um maybe she's like a i was starting younger, to question like whether she was actually as old as 30 but it's yeah she's in her 30s okay okay but the the fact that her career arc specifically plays out the way that it does is so insane uh, in so many ways first of all the fact that let me preface this by saying I enjoyed these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> we actually really like this show. I really enjoyed these episodes. <laughs> but I hate Rory. Um, <laughs> I really hated her in this. It, it was very difficult to root for her. Um, she milks this talk of the town piece that she got paid a couple hundred dollars for. And somehow is parlaying this into a writing career that doesn't go anywhere. A journalism career, that, rather, that, does, that doesn't go anywhere. A website is super anxious to get her, and, and she keeps blowing them off and doesn't take them seriously, so of course she doesn't end up getting the job. And I, it's not even clear to me if we're supposed to feel bad for her that she doesn't get it, or if it's supposed to be, like, comeuppance because she wasn't taking it seriously enough. Yeah. Uh, all the stuff with uh, River Song, Alex Kingston. Yes. All the, all the stuff with, I mean, that... It, it mostly just, it distracts from the fact that Rory is the one making bad choices yeah. in her career. She's the one who's weirdly unmoored at this point in, in her career, weirdly directionless. She's doing a bad job of pitching stuff. She's acting like pretty much everything is beneath her. Yeah. At the same time, not only does she have three phones which must be costing her more in a month than she got paid for that talk of the town piece yeah but she's jetting back and forth between london new york and stars hollow how much is she paying for that oh jesus where's Nobody that knows. coming from and I, I sort of feel like the paladinos wanted to you know because rory is a millennial and you know maybe even on the, on the older side of that spectrum like i am but still in that space where you know, we graduated college right as everything went to shit. 
um, or started going to college right as everything went to shit or, you know, ascended to adulthood around that time. Um, and in that context, certainly stories of millennials who find themselves unmoored and they had a plan when they were a kid or an adolescent and they planned really well and they were overachievers and then they got into the world and it all went pear-shaped i mean that in that sort of economic context that makes sense i mean god knows that happened to me um but it's not relatable because rory's fucking rich and she's still living like a rich girl she's rich she is sending her belongings across continents she's changing her flight on a moment's her transcontinental flight on a moment's notice she has family connections that can get her jobs she just she wouldn't be in that position unless she could afford to be in that position and i think this is one of the reasons why i keep returning to paris and emily as two of my favorite characters because yeah they're rich bitches and they have adopted a lot of the horrible attitudes and judgmental notions and mannerisms that come with that but they own it they're not pretending they're they're anything they're not they know how easy their lives are much as paris particularly might complain about how horrible the world is but they they get it i think they know themselves a lot more than either rory or lorelei does well not a coincidence i think paris's hero or maternal figure let's say um her nanny yeah her nanny had to work for right (laughs) you know um so yeah she grew up rich but she was raised by somebody who was working i'm not saying lorelei wasn't working obviously lorelei worked because lorelei didn't have family money until it came time to pay for rory's education and the the show does make a big point of that and and that is important and we see lorelei working over the course of the series but as you were pointing out, Lorelai still has the entitlement of someone who grew up old money. Yeah. And this is New England. There are a lot of people who grow up old money and don't have money. Yeah. That entitlement doesn't require a bank account. No. It's this idea of like, well, my family's been here since, you know, we were Mayflower people. Right. Like, how could you not grant us the respect and adoration that we deserve? Exactly that that D A R bullshit. Yeah, um, and which is why it's so great. I'm jumping all over here, but you know, you mentioned Paris as your favorite character. Emily is my favorite favorite character, both in the original series and in the revival. Yes, and I love where Emily ends up. Her arc is a little there's a little bit of a stutter step in getting there. I feel like they it would have been better with a little more room to breathe maybe maybe six episodes instead of four to get there Mm -hmm. um we skip over this mysterious letter that Lorelai didn't send that Emily is you know convinced that she did but I love that we get to this place where Emily is just leaving behind the DAR life Mm -hmm. and working at this whaling museum yeah you know, she's she's post Gilmore. Yeah, she's like, wait a minute, I know a whole fucking lot about whales. Yeah, I like this. <laughs> I'm gonna lecture small children on whales. She seems genuinely happy. Yeah, she, she is. She is in a place of joy, and it's great. It's fantastic. 
Um, it's it's one of my favorite parts of the revival, particularly because you know with with her husband dead, and with her child and grandchild both grown in, in fairly decent fight. Well, you know they they were always in good financial straits because like worst comes to worst, you know if somebody fucking kidnapped Rory and held her for ransom and said, we need a million dollars by tomorrow. Lorelai's not going to go, I'm not going to ask my mom. Right. Like, like, <laughs> like if, if Lorelai had gotten stage three colon cancer, like, and couldn't afford treatment, she wouldn't be making meth in, in her right, inner right, basement. Right. Like Emily would be helping her. But even so, like it really feels like Emily has been freed of the Gilmore burden the burden of being a Gilmore because you know she married into that she we see in the original series how she struggled even though she didn't really come from a terrible you know a, a terribly low family herself um how she really struggled to fit into this this Gilmore echelon and live up to it yeah. and um how exhausting that must be over the course of decades um you can really I think that um What's the actress's name again? Kelly Bishop? Thank you. Kelly Bishop, yeah. She just does... She's so good. Um, she just does such a fabulous job of representing how, you know, she's done her grieving. She's gone through her life disruptions and her identity crises, and now she just feels free. Yeah. And people who really like Kelly Bishop should look for bunheads. <laughs> on, oh bunheads on, on uh youtube probably yeah. i actually don't think it's streaming anywhere so pirate it from your favorite place yeah or find it on youtube acquire it acquire it however by, you may by your means um, <laughs> no she's amazing in that she's, oh she's so good in everything yeah yeah she really she's is. a mom in dirty dancing she was a magnum pi whoa back in the day she was we saw her in that episode we did yeah we did oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, i don't know yeah she was in that episode. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah the emily stuff is is great i i always have mixed feelings about emily and lorelei fights because well i i don't know i don't want to rehash too much of the original series all over again but um I have mixed feelings about them. I guess I'll just leave it at that. I, yeah. Sometimes, I mean, it's interesting because Kelly Bishop thinks that, that Emily is a fairly terrible person. <laughs> yeah. Um, she thinks that she's a, and that's one reason why she enjoyed Bunhead so much. If you read interviews with her, yeah. it's because in Bunhead, she plays someone much closer to her own personality. Yeah. Whereas she sees herself as playing Emily as a lot of the, rich women that she knew mm -hmm. um the ones concerned with appearances concerned right. with status yeah and that often comes into play in the fights with Lorelai and those are the times when I can't side with her no you know no um and so when I say that Emily is my favorite character it's it, it's obviously not the same as saying that I always agree with her or, or yeah. always take her side but Lorelai is so often in the wrong too and the, the the fight between them in the revival was interesting because it wasn't really a question of either of them being in the wrong so much as just both of them being very emotional and clashing as a result of that I think uh, well and I think also a lot of my frustration in witnessing these fights over the course of the original series and the new episodes is 
that it's really like witnessing, you know, the same repetitive toxic family dynamic, which is true to life. You know, in real life, we all know people, we have family members, friends or whatever, who are essentially reenacting the same fight over and over. They have done it for years. They'll probably do it for the rest of their lives. It's frustrating to see this play out on a show because even though we all have this frame of reference from our own experience, whether we've been part of that dynamic or not, to see it on a show with no evolution, even though for so many people, they will never evolve out of that or break out of that. From a viewing perspective, it gets frustrating and old because it's like, ugh, like yeah. just do do something different now. Like, you know, even if there, there always needs to be conflict for a story to happen. We know that the conflict is at the heart of, of so much narrative, but I just feel like evolve the conflict to something else. Find something, find a different way that was one of the frustrating things about the fight in the revival because the fight very overtly became yeah. this is the fight we've been having ever since Lorelai left the house. Yeah. Um, 16 years earlier. Yeah. And it felt like over the course of the show's six original seasons, they had moved so, even the five Amy Sherman Palladino seasons, they had moved so far beyond that. Yeah. And Lorelai even comes out and says as much that mm-hmm. they had become so much closer and worked through so much of that um which is another way in which so much of this revival this is a theory a lot of critics and fans have pointed out uh so much of this revival felt like the leftover ideas for season seven just moved however many years later so that we have a 30 something rory instead of a right immediately post-college rory um and you know all the stuff with Logan. Ugh. Should we talk about the boyfriends? Yeah, They're I mean, I, honestly, that's another thing that I've that so many people who love this show, they really get invested in who will Rory get together with. You know, Rory's gentleman. Paris. Honestly, that's what I said. Like maybe the first time, I know the first Paris Rory interaction. I was like, that's. The interaction they have in that first episode where Rory starts at Chilton and Paris, like, walks by her and, like, turns her head and looks at her, that's the same blocking, the same movement, the same setup that they do in every single goddamn teen movie where the hot bad boy sees the new girl in school and he turns around and is like, who's that? (laughs) They had Paris doing that and they have set up that dynamic through the whole show and I'm really pissed that they're not married in this fucking awesome power lesbian setup like just why why are you denying it all this time they're perfect together they're perfect together i i won't argue i won't argue like who cares about dean and logan and jess i mean they're all different flavors of intolerable i think logan is probably if i had to pick a favorite of three different types of turds then he's my favorite turd i i would agree with that Prior to the revival. Prior to the revival where it's just like, fuck, they ruined Logan. Yeah. In the revival, Logan is awful. Yes. The skull and bones, life and death, peace and jelly bean society, whatever the <laughs> fuck they're called, is... is... Pickles and relish. <laughs> We're the pickles and ice cream boys. <laughs> um, whatever, whatever they are. We're the bubblegum crew. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're they're just 
oh my god that sequence just goes on and on oh my god the montage yes the montage where it's like they should have they should have played walking on sunshine to that montage <laughs> it was such a walking on sunshine we could go back and Fucking do it sequence we um, could <laughs> it it's they yeah they ruined logan they ruined logan unnecessarily because he wasn't so great that it was necessary to ruin him no. you know um it, it he wasn't so high up that he had to be brought down a peg but it's weird how in the revival dean comes off the best mainly yeah. because he's there so briefly he's he's just like i'm just popping into the store no drama no big deal how you doing i'm doing good too <laughs> see you later in the next revival and also i mean when he sort of hears about when he and rory are exchanging very brief life updates you sort of see this look on his face like i dodged a bullet well that, <laughs> yeah yeah uh and he did and he, he did. did i mean certainly his life is not what rory would have wanted it's not what i would have wanted but it makes him really happy and it's perfect for him and, and that, that makes respect, sense for sorry that makes sense for him yeah it it makes sense for who i i always said that, that the boyfriends made a lot of sense because dean totally makes sense as a first boyfriend in high school yeah. he seems like a high school boyfriend guy just makes sense as the guy you date because you were dating the safe high school boyfriend right. guy <laughs> But Jess is awful. He's not that awful in the revival. No. Weirdly enough, he's, he's the second worst guy. He's totally adequate. Yeah. Um, or in Lindsay Lohan speak, adequate. Adequate. I haven't watched that clip, but I... I it's not you. It's not a clip. Don't. I'll catch you up on uh, early to mid-2000 celebrity gossip in another episode. Okay. It was It was a letter to fans. Oh, oh! I, th- I thought you were talking about her weird accent, the clip no. with her weird accent. No, Adequate is a whole other era of it's Lindsay Lohan different... wonder. I have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, um, well, I'll get you there. All right. Uh, it, it, but, but, yeah, and, and Logan makes sense as the guy you date because you're going to your rich grandfather's college, and that's yeah. the guy you meet there. Uh, you, like, there was a... So I never saw any reason to debate one versus the other because they're all just very transparently like this is the boyfriend for this stage this is you know you're moving through these stages in life um and by extension it always seemed obvious to me that the thing to wish for is for rory to end up with none of them right because you want to move past that you want to graduate college someday yeah so given all that do we care who formed the babby inside of Rory? How Rory gets pregnant? Oh, we care a lot because we don't want it to be the Wookiee. <laughs> oh, would the Wookiee really be worse than any of the other possibilities? Yeah. You're not sure. I'm not. I rest sh- my case. I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> except that. If it's so, like, I don't. Like, I don't know if I want a bunch of episodes in the the re- the re revival of Rory being like I conceived a baby on a one night stand da, 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 da. but like let, let's go down the list right if it's if it's Dean then well, it's not Dean no, but like let's okay. just let, okay. journey with me okay. dream with okay. me okay. if it was Dean for example then we're dealing with a situation where you know Dean's been a fucking asshole and ruined his life and Rory has been complicit in that and has been complicit in sleeping with yet another married or taken man and that sucks 
That sucks a lot. Yeah. If it was Jess, that's awful because fuck Jess. Jess is the worst. Yeah. Um, I hate him. If it's Logan, ugh. You know, then we have this Logan mess where she's she's been Logan's kept woman, and now she's pregnant with his baby. That so Logan mess has a Logan. name, and it's Rory's baby. <laughs> Logan mess Gilmore Huntsberger. <laughs> Accepted to Yale class of forever. <laughs> class of forever. That's right. That's that's <laughs> that's the math. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it, it works. <laughs> Other possibilities? What? The Wookiee. The Wookiee? Did you just forget her actual boyfriend, too? Just like everybody in the show? Ah, she has an actual boyfriend that in dude, the show. That boy? Paul, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Him. He. You realize he's the actual second most likely candidate. Yeah. The guy she's actually dating. I mean, but when was the last time his penis was in close enough proximity to her vagina? I don't know. Anytime she's off screen? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who? if we really, we really we get... There are no sex scenes in what the What if hall. it was Taylor? Taylor's good. <laughs> Taylor's good. I think so. They all think so. They all so. think so. <laughs> I mean, then there's the other possibility that you had read on one of your... TV blogadoos. Oh, that yeah. Um, uh, Which is that Rory is a surrogate. Rory is for Lorelai. Luke and Lorelai's surrogate, and that that's what she was telling her. Which narratively, I mean, certainly the setup's all there. Paris runs the you know designer surrogate business. She had been wanting to work with Lorelai and Luke on getting Lorelai knocked up with a designer baby. You know, she had Paris had been saying she knows a lot of women who are fine breeding stock. Um, and certainly she's obsessed with Rory and secretly in love with her and always has been. So in some ways (laughs) she would probably put Rory high on that list. Here's what's interesting about that is that it, it justifies all the surrogate stuff, Mm -hmm. which otherwise seems to lead nowhere. Yeah. Um, what it doesn't do is it's not made clear in the show. That that's what it is and it's weird it's weird if that's what the answer is because the only way to find out that that's what the answer is is if it comes back for more episodes yeah because it doesn't seem like it's ending in an intentionally ambiguous way except for the question of who the father is yeah but who the mother is does not seem to be up for question no <laughs> It doesn't sound like we liked it, but we really did. <laughs> um, we did. We did. Should we talk about some of the good stuff? I mean... Paris and Emily, Paris obviously. and Emily. Amazing. Um, um, town Troubadour. Always love the callbacks sure, to the Town Troubadour. Sure. Uh, and the Town Troubadour battles, for that matter. Yeah. That's the best part of the Town Troubadour, is just their terrifyingly violent and angry turf wars. Yes. To broaden that out, the setting of Stars Hollow in general. Yeah. I would say. And you mentioned Taylor. Yep. And let's also mention Gypsy. Yep. The fact that that Suki, you know, that Melissa McCarthy was able to come back for a a limited amount of time. It was, it would have been so weird without her. It was great. It would have. I could have done without the celebrity chef cameos and mentions and all the dancing around why she's not in various scenes. I actually would have preferred like just 
implying that Suki is there the whole time and not showing her. Yeah. <laughs> just not having her. Honestly, I would just like she's really busy over there in that she's busy doing just joke around that. Like she's just, really busy making a cake right or just now. just see over her shoulder like Maris Maris Crane or Right, right. <laughs> it, it just I mean, it was just weird. Yeah. It was odd. I could have used more Hep Alien. Yes, um, more Lane and Zach and their family in general. They um, were great. I thought that Amy Sherman Palladino's comment in an interview on why Hep Alien had the arc or lack thereof that they did was weird, which is specifically... I think I read that. Um, in season six, the one that she didn't write, Lane got pregnant, had kids. Yeah. So Amy Sherman Palladino said, well, once Lane had kids, I realized that her arc and Hep Alien's arc had to change because once she has kids, she has to stay in Stars Hollow because otherwise she's a bad parent. What? Right. That makes no sense. No, it makes no sense. And I mean, we don't have kids. Paladinos don't have kids either. And so our opinion is as valid as theirs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) They're wrong. (laughs) Okay, that's... Science. <laughs> that is science. Oh, We've good. covered math and science. Math and in science. This show it's educational. It's yeah. Good. Yeah. We should um, uh, enroll this in MIT's open courseware. There platform. you go. Um, People gonna learn. Get some continuing ed credits. Yeah. But yeah. I, so I I just feel like she just sort of didn't do much with Hep Alien because she just felt like other people had written her into a corner, and that's weird. Yeah. And disappointing. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like Lane should have, as a character, should have to suffer the brunt of that. Like there, she has a mom who does. I mean, she runs an antique store. Like she's not, she's not working her fingers to the bone. She has time to look after those grandbabies right. if Hep Alien wants to tour. Right, and Zach must have parents, right? Have we ever met them? Also, Mister Kim clearly has time on his hands because we've never seen him before. But he comes back. That's what I'm yes. saying. We've never seen him yeah. before. He's available for babysitting. He's available. So I just don't... And, you know, and everybody is so, like, over-sherry and over-involved in everybody else's lives in Stars Hollow that I'm sure, like, fucking Taylor would babysit them. I yeah, mean, anybody. It, 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 it doesn't it doesn't work. And I'm sure there are bands that take their kids on the road. Yes. For that matter. Yes. Um, plus, this is years later now. Yeah. So once they're older... They could have so I so just I just think this is the one example where it's clear that she just got hemmed in because somebody else wrote something she wouldn't have written. Yeah. And it gave her writer's block. Yeah. Which is um, a shame. It is a shame. But I think she's just making excuses uh that that, that don't hold water. It yeah. it happens. It's a shame that her show was basically taken away from her for a year. Yeah. That said, despite all of our complaining, we really liked this show. Uh, Netflix, please make more episodes. Yeah. That would be swell. Um, more Paris. Yes. I, I would like to see lots, lots more Paris. So if you could also cancel How to Get Away with Murder. Yeah. I know Netflix doesn't do that. Or but... just like just kill off her character so that she can be free to do. Yeah. I mean, that. Do this. But make more episodes first i don't want to i don't want um <laughs> Liza Liza while to be out of work and um, i mean also you know something that you don't see talked about in a lot of gilmore girls writing but more sam phillips music always good oh sure and uh it was weird not having the theme song at the beginning right 
We didn't have it? In the opening credits. Oh. I guess I've already forgotten. They had the, the like, sound bites. Oh, yeah, yeah, from yeah, yeah. From the yeah, show. Yeah. yeah. But we, we still had the Sam Phillips interstitials. Yeah. And they still played... I really liked when Lorelai and Luke do finally get married in the new episodes, and they play the same Sam Phillips song that they were playing in the original series when they have their first dance. Um, I thought that was a great callback. So I, I love what they do with music on the show, and I, I'm glad that they kept it up as, as well as could be expected, at least. And of course, that's not a Sam Phillips song in the opening credits, I'm realizing. No. But you mentioned music. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um. <laughs> Relatedly, when I was uh, in the hospital, or my mom was in the hospital, and I was in her room when she had just gotten out of knee surgery recently... Um, she was having, she was on lots of painkillers and she was having a hard time operating the TV remote and trying to find which channel to watch. She was like, everything is terrible. So I found, I was flipping around and I saw that Gilmore Girls had just started. Um, and so I said, oh, Gilmore Girls is pretty good. You'll, you'll like this. I'll leave it on this. And the theme started playing and she said, why did they ruin this Carol King song? And I said, <laughs> that's Carol King singing with her daughter. Oh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yep. So, sorry, Carol King's daughter. <laughs> My mom doesn't like you when she's on drugs. That's a weird apology. <laughs> uh, it applies to so much in life. So I think that's about all we have to say about Gilmore Girls for now. We really do want another season, so hopefully we'll get that soon. Absolutely. Oh, please, oh, please. All right, so the other thing we wanted to talk about in today's episode is Rogue One, which we recently saw in the theaters, um, and which we both really, really liked as longtime Star Wars fans. Yes. From birth, or in... Not quite birth for me. (laughs) In my case. I am pre-Star Wars. That's so weird. No, it's (laughs) weird that you're not. (laughs) That's... But uh, seeing Star Wars is my earliest memory. Mm, yes. Okay. Uh, my my first memory is of seeing Star Wars in the theater, and I saw all three Star Wars movie, all three original Star Wars movies in the theater, uh, more than once. Oh man. Yep. Um, I did not see the re-releases, the like the special editions. Yeah. In the theater, uh, I was not able to do th- to do that. But when I was a kid, you know, they would they would re-release the original ones, um, like when Empire came out or maybe a year before Empire came out, uh, Star Wars was re-released and stuff like that. So, yeah, I saw all the originals when I was a kid several times in the theater. My parents went out on a date to one, I guess it would have been Empire, when right before they got married. I don't remember seeing them, but... (laughs) You didn't? They were right behind you. Um, Why didn't you see them? (laughs) Um, But I I saw the re-release of, I want to say Empire in 96... That was the first date I ever went on with a boy. That is weird. (laughs) (laughs) But cool. (laughs) Wait, 97. Because I was 15. Okay. Yeah, I I think it was 97. All right. Yeah. Well, Empire is one of my favorite movies. Oh, as as you know. You know, what. Our, our shared one of our shared favorite movies yes yes um so good so many people don't know people who are don't care that much about star wars don't know that uh, lee brackett who you know amazing writer both of books and and screenplays um 
wrote or co-wrote the screenplay for Empire. I, and I think co-wrote, but I don't remember. I think it really shows, because didn't she write or co-write uh, the screenplay for The Big Sleep? Uh, the Long Goodbye. The Long Goodbye. I always... It was yeah. one of... Yeah. Yeah. I think. Oh, and I'm going to prove to be wrong, but I think it was The Long Goodbye. Yeah. And I think it really shows in the quality of the movie. It's just... Uh, everything. The pacing, the banter, the characterization, the visuals. It's... It's all so good. It's the strongest of all the Star Wars movies. So I far. love yeah. that when you were a little kid and you saw Empire, you didn't realize there was going to be a movie after it. Yes, <laughs> this is well. This has always been key <laughs> to my my love of Empire Strikes the Empire Strikes Back. Is I was when did it come out? Nineteen eighty something. Yeah. Um. So I was five when it came out, and I. It may seem obvious now that it's part of a trilogy, and the whole idea of a trilogy may seem obvious now, but it wasn't obvious at the time. It, there weren't a shit ton of movies that were parts of series at the time, so just the fact that there was a second Star Wars movie was a big deal, and it did not occur to me that there would be more Star Wars movies. I just thought, that's the end of the story. That's We had Star Wars. It's cool that there's more Star Wars, but... Holy shit. <laughs> Everything's they, terrible now. They froze Han Solo, and Luke just found out that Darth Vader is his father, and, and... And lost his hand. And lost his hand, and... Oh, man, Lando betrayed everybody. <sighs> Everything is terrible forever, the end. Man, <laughs> let's go get some action figures. Yeah. This is just... Uh, I've learned I, some important I, lessons today. I hope I get a Cloud City action set, because... <laughs> My heart needs one, and I, I never did. Um, I never got the little micro micro set, but yeah, and uh, it wasn't until um, two years later, maybe, that um, older friends of mine told me that a new Star Wars movie was coming out, and because they were older, I thought they were fucking with me, because they knew how much I loved Star Wars, so I thought they were teasing me. I thought they were they were like trying to see if I would believe it or not. They had another like, book after Return of the King. Right, like when, well, like when uh, older kids try to see if you still believe in Santa or not. Yeah. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so they had to convince me. Um, I can't imagine how crushed I would be watching the end of that movie and not realizing there was another movie. But it's an it's an amazing, that is how it should be experienced. Though. I, feel, <laughs> I feel bad for you that you can't experience it that way because it's a very, it has to be a very different thing to watch it knowing that as soon as you're done watching it, you can just fucking watch Return of the Jedi. What is that shit? Listen. Not waiting three I years for the next one to come I had a lot of other things <sighs> to be sad about as a child. <sighs> Yeah, but I had didn't... nightmares about the giant squid in Popeye for years. Squids are there to save us. Don't. We're not even gonna. No. <laughs> no. That's another episode. That's another episode in hell. <laughs> that was uh, that was the original title of this podcast. Was, uh, before it was called Streets Ahead, it was going to be called Another Episode in Hell. Oh, that so. can be our subtitle. Okay, but this is about Rogue One. <laughs> Obviously, we love the original three movies. Obviously, the prequels are substandard and mockworthy in many ways. We watch, we watch the them, prequels. we watch them, and we laugh. There are some. Good I parts, don't. Mostly I bad. watch them and I get mad. 
I'm I'm mad. Okay, the but there are parts that I mean, come on, Revenge of the Sith at the end, Darth Vader gave us the no, like that's amazing. Okay, let's go straight from Revenge of the Sith to Rogue One because okay. one of the things I did not realize about Rogue One, in while watching it, when we first see Darth Vader in Rogue One and he's in his back to tank, and he's all, you know, like. More, more machine than man yeah. and, and, and you know looking all gross and shit did you know that's the same planet where he got all darthed up in the first place no that's the lava planet <laughs> where where like he lost the fight because he couldn't stay on high ground you gotta leave man which Luke got so mad about on Gilmore Girls <laughs> so that's how much of an emo fuck he is that he has <laughs> made his castle yeah on the site of his greatest defeat. I live here now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> King Sads. King Sads. No wonder Kylo Ren is so fucking emo. Yes. My yes. grandfather was better than all of you. That's just also um, Darth Vader's uh, fortress, palace, castle, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Um, based on a Ralph McQuarrie design. Um, the guy who designed all this stuff for like Star Wars and, and Empire and oh, okay. the like... Not background artists, but yeah. what do you call them? The the storyboard yeah. guy. Um, done for the original trilogy, yeah. but never built. Ah. So just like the footage of, what is it, Red Leader and Gold Leader mm-hmm. um, that they found in the archives and spliced into oh, Rogue yeah. One, yeah, yeah. they took a storyboard drawn for the original trilogy and created the actual mm-hmm. set. That's cool. Uh, I just that's amazing. That's that's some work. That's one of the things that makes the movie work so well is that they were so committed to recreating the aesthetic of those that new Hollywood era sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they were so faithful to the look and feel of it. It didn't feel like in a way that the prequels were not as faithful. No, I think they definitely felt very '90s. They had that. I don't know late 90s to early 2000s Britney Spears type feel that just didn't work. One thing I will say in the prequels defense, believe it or not, is that I think they would look better if they were made now. I think even oh, yeah. the intervening is it 15 years, however yeah. long it's been, 20 yeah. years, not quite 20 not years quite. since the first one. Um, CGI has come so far that Lucas acted too early. Believe it or not, I know he took fucking forever to make the first prequel, <laughs> but even given that, because he relied so heavily on CGI for it, it's like he made it at the first possible moment that he could use that much CGI for, yeah. and it ages really badly as yeah. a result. And it has that early CGI, or what we will eventually call early CGI, um, has... A distinctive look to it in the same way that Ray Harryhausen stop motion has a yeah. distinctive feel to it. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not virtuosity bad. No, no. <laughs> or lawnmower man <coughs> bad. But it's it, it's noticeable. It doesn't blend in as well as certainly the CGI in Rogue One does to us now. Right. But mm. who knows how dated it will look to us. Well, and CGI is what we're going to talk about, yeah. too. Well, and and there's a difference in Rogue One between the CGI of the backgrounds and the ships yeah. and the blending and the CGI of recreating Peter Cushing. Yeah, 
That was weird. The 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 CGI Peter Cushing was a bad choice. That was just like watching a bunch of Dragon Age cutscenes. It was weird. It, it was not. It was awkward. If it looks bad now, it's going to look awful yeah. in twenty years. That's where the temptation to do director special editions, mm-hmm. you know, re redo redoing the movie. That's where the temptation to do that comes yeah. from. Is stuff like that is going to age so poorly? Yeah. It's it was just unfortunate. It's it's such a strong movie and it's such a strong movie visually. And if it were just the Carrie Fisher stuff, it would be fine, right? Because she's there for so little of it, and her clothes are closer in color to the background. Yes, which helps. <laughs> yeah, the Peter Cushing. He has more lines. He's there for more of it. He's in more scenes, and he totally doesn't need to be. He does he not doesn't need, to be at need to be. They could have written around that. He doesn't need to be. Um, and you know, one of the things I pointed out after uh, after we saw it, yeah, I think it was even in the on the the ride home, they could have gotten around it by just still having Grand Moff Tarkin appear, having all of that exact dialogue, but having him appear via hologram. Sure. So that it's diegetic cgi sure. so to speak sure um maybe we should backtrack a little for anybody listening who might not have seen it there um, are spoilers in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> for rogue one a star wars movie <laughs> even, <laughs> even just just some just a little bit of context a little bit of Spoilers. Well, you know, just we've made even more enemies now. But in terms of context, just without saying, there's going to be spoilers. Oh, well, you know, whatever. But so, (laughs) (laughs) so Rogue One, because there are some people who haven't seen it and might not have read about it. um, It covers that time between um, the prequels and the sequels, where um, there or or somewhat slightly before New Hope. Um, Literally immediately immediately before before A New Hope, um, where uh, these rebels are uh, basically figuring out how to fuck up the Death Star and how, you know, you get that little because it it, it plays back into the thing from the, the original movies where it's like, why would they spend all this time? building a Death Star and there's this one easy way to just blow up the whole fucking thing and like how and this movie sort of it gives a, a decent explanation for that that the exploit was built in intentionally and so it follows these twin paths of the man uh, the daughter of the man who built the Death Star and in, intentionally built in this vulnerability um, and how her path converges with the rebels who then um, work with her to get the plans that they can smuggle back to the Rebel Alliance so that Luke and Leia and their buds can fuck that shit up. The interesting thing about it is that it's still not a great explanation. No. <laughs> it's it's like, um, I was going to use a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, comparison. That's not quite right, but... They are constrained in that they are making a movie that has to fit in with what has already been done. Right. And the Death Star of the original movie already exists. Yes. So you have to work with You with have what to work with what you've got. Um, and certainly we're used to suspending disbelief and uh, avoiding logic flaws and plot holes in other Star Wars movies. So 
there's there's a certain level of tolerance that yeah. the Star Wars viewer has for things like this. And dramatically, Luke blowing up the Death Star the way he does works well in the original Star Wars yeah. movie. Yeah. And so, but but logically, it would be a lot better to sabotage the Death Star by building a Death Star that either A, doesn't work, mm-hmm. B, blows itself up, yeah. C, <laughs> blows up the bad guys instead of the good guys. Yeah. You know, or... Just anything other than requiring a Jedi pilot to shoot a womp rat sized target (laughs) (laughs) in order to blow it up after all the Jedi have been killed. (laughs) That's not a great sabotage. No. I loved, again, we loved this movie. We loved this. It was great. (laughs) But... It's not a great sabotage. And that's genuinely not a fault with Rogue One. Because, like I said, they are stuck with the Death Star that already existed. And so that is not their... That's not their thing that they made. They're just explaining what's They're having to write around that. And I think they did a good job. Yeah, yeah. And really, not much of the movie rests on that logic. Yeah. So we have British actress Felicity Jones playing... The daughter of, of the architect, who's played by Mads Mikkelsen, um, killing no one, not wearing antlers, not bathing in blood, just just building a Death Star. Yeah, just building just, a Death just Star. Just your, not, so not your usual Mads Mikkelsen stuff. Although, by extension, killing yeah. billions. So. True, true. <laughs> the ultimate Viking Lecter ploy. And she meets up with um, rebel forces who include Diego Luna, um, notably being the first actor to have a... Um, a Spanish-speaking or Latino accent in a Star Wars movie, which is fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, it's great. And even, um, I forget the actor's name who played Nas in The Night Of, but he plays the, the pilot, uh, Bodhi Rook. Um, he was fantastic, too, and he also has a slight accent, different from, at least from his accent that we've seen in other movies, um, like a slight South Asian accent. Yeah. So that was wonderful. And, I mean, it's interesting that that has dominated so much news coverage I mean, it's it's prominent and it's important, but I've. It was funny just on on social media today. One of my friends was saying, you know, I'm gonna go see Rogue One. I'm really excited about it, and I I'm all about visibility and representation, and I love Diego Luna, but uh, I really hope they justify or explain why there's suddenly a Mexican accent in here, and are there space Mexicans? Like, please explain this. And I was like, well. They haven't justified why there are so many space Americans and space British and space whatever the fuck accent Natalie Portman had in the prequels. Why did Alec Guinness have his accent? Right, right. I mean, these are... Star Wars is known for having some weird-ass accents, and beyond that, just total linguistic and cultural fuckery. So I don't know that this needs to be justified or explained. God knows that this is a galaxy of which we have only seen a tiny part. Um, of the, the linguistics of which we know little about in terms of language diasporas and um, and dialect continua and how they spread across the galaxy. So um, I think that's, I think it's ridiculous. I, it, I think it needs a, no justification. <laughs> it's a world where a space helmet makes Hayden Christensen talk like James Earl Jones, right, for God's sake. Right, And thank God it's at least not a movie where we have to suffer George Lucas's incredibly racist caricatures of like the the, the trade union the guys. trade union guys who do who are doing like your racist uncle's bad imitation of a japanese accent or like 
Jar Jar Binks and all his buddies on Naboo who were like, Misa do this, Misa do that, big, big, blood blue. Like, ugh, horrible. If people could tolerate that, but they can't handle, like, an actual Mexican accent. Right. In, in the Star Wars universe, then, like, like you are the problem. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's another example of British accents are normal. They're, they're yeah. the default. American accents are normal. Right. You know, it's what's what's marked as normal and what's marked as the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and Diego Luna was great. You know, I I always think of him as part of the the dyadic pair of Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal. You know, forever bros because they've they're besties. They're in a lot of movies together, and so I guess mentally I often do Diego Luna a disservice because so often I think I love Diego Luna, but. I really wish this was Gail Garcia Bernal, huh. but he did it. You know what? I was thinking that at the beginning of the movie, but he did a great job. I thought he was Props great. Props to you, Diego yeah. Luna. He was yeah. fantastic. Um, I thought Felicity Jones was great. I. It's the first movie in which I didn't think, oh, she was good, but it's too bad the movie wasn't better. Right, right. I mean, I think that she is, and she's very, she's relatively early in her career, so this may not always be the case. I think that she's an actor who you know will rise to the level of what she's in but will rarely transcend it so if she's in a bad movie she's not going to be it's not going to be like oh felicity jones was amazing but that movie sucked like it will be like felicity jones was fine but that movie sucked and like i said that may change as she grows as an actor um and and you know continues to work but uh i think that it was good to see her in a vehicle that we actually liked because I can't think of a movie I've seen her in where, you know, all, she was fine in all of them, but yeah. I was just, I mean, I thought the theory of everything was just awful. Well, I think everything we've seen her in, she was good enough that it was clear that she wasn't the problem with the movie. Yes. Yes. Though. Yeah. Which may not be transcending yeah. it, but it's at least demonstrating a, a particular level of competence. Yeah. So she was great in this. It was great to see so many actors of color represented in the movie Forrest Whitaker playing a small but pivotal role was really great that crazy blind force dude who was so awesome just doing like a, a Zatoichi the blind swordsman type uh, you callback know, he, he's one of those this is a classic Star Wars problem but uh, when I was a kid there were so many characters whose names I only knew because I had the action <laughs> I know because if they're addressed by name well, first of all, many of them are never addressed by name. Yeah. Like a lot of the bounty hunters. Yeah. But a lot of the others, if they're addressed by name, they're only addressed by name once. Yeah. If they're a minor character, like Jabba the Hutt's right-hand man or something. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if he ever was addressed by name. Or or the alias that Leia gives at Jabba's palace when she's sneaking in before you find out that it's Leia. Stuff like that. Um, point being, I don't remember blind... Quasi Jedi. Chirrut Imwe. Chirrut Imwe. Okay. And like, were they doing a lot of saying like, "Come on, Chirrut"? No. Let's go, rogue this one up. <laughs> Just gonna rogue the shit out of it. <laughs> Once. Once. <laughs> we're big Johnny Dangerously fans. We should probably talk about Johnny Dangerously at some point. Oh, we will. Okay, and yeah, Chirrut Imwe's buddy was named Baze Melbus. 
I feel like I would remember Chirrut and Baze. I, yeah. I feel like these are action Like, figures. certainly I remember I remembered first Whitaker's character's name, Saw Gerrera. That's like, that's a memorable But name. they talk about... They be- talk about, they see, say his and, name a and lot. And the reason why is because people talk about Saw Gerrera when he is not in the room with them. Yes. So you have to use his name. Uh, even even the robot had like an incomprehensible and hard to remember name K two S O K two S O okay played by Alan Tudyk fantastic oh he was he was terrific so he funny was... so good like just a really good tonal note although... and in fact the new movies in general this is another area well I this is another area where they're doing so much better than the prequels but that's a weird th- area to compare them in but um the the new movies are doing such a great job with new droids. Yeah, <laughs> BB-8 and uh, Alan Tudyk droid, whose name I've just forgotten. K2SO, already. K2SO, 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 and BB-8. So good, so good, so good. Both of them. Yeah. I uh, and and I, again, I realize that's a strange area to compare them to the prequels because the droids in the prequels are R2D2 and C3PO. But that's kind of my point: is yeah. that that was a cop out. They didn't yeah. introduce cool new droids in yeah. the prequels. But I have to say. Maybe I did lo- love K2SO, and I loved Cashin Andor, and, and, and so many good people in this movie. But I think my favorite, and he's often my favorite in many other things he appears in, it was Ben Mendelsohn as Orson Krennic. I, I was surprised what a good villain he was. Uh, not because of the actor. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. I I was just. It's not a character that is essential to the plot. Yeah, I guess I guess that's it. Because we know what's going to happen. So really. You could have, reverting to, to game think, he, he could just he could just be an NPC. Some random little background guy. He doesn't need to. You have this whole faceless empire as the villain. You don't really need to single out some additional characters to represent the face of the empire. But the fact that they did and that he was a compelling character, and who knows how much of that is just because Ben Mendelsohn is a great actor, was really interesting. Like yeah. the fact that it showed... Him and, and Galen or so being best bros once upon a time. I think that the movie could have written a little harder on showing that line between Galen's complicity in serving the Empire. I would have liked to see more of that too. Because I really think that was more of a moral issue and a moral dilemma than they were presenting. It was it was more like the, the writers and the movie itself presented it as, well, he felt bad about it and he undermined it. So in the end, it's all fine and he's a good guy. And it's like, I mean, he kind of isn't though. <laughs> and by extension, if they were best buddies and everything, does Krennic feel nothing about killing his family and everything? Yeah. It's interesting because you can tell the story without the character, yeah. as you're saying. Um, we already have Darth Vader. We already have Grand Moff Tarkin. We yeah. already have the Emperor. So you have all these major players in place. What adding him does in an interesting way is it adds another leg to the whole question of why does this Death Star from Star Wars exist? Which is uh, Galen Erso answers the question of why does it have this Womp Rat-sized vulnerability? (laughs) Right. Krennic answers the question of why did they invest these resources into a Death Star in the first place? Which I'm not sure had to be answered. Yeah. But they present it as the passion project yeah. of this guy, which is interesting. Yes. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think, too, for people who aren't familiar with Ben Mendelsohn uh, in his previous projects, it's interesting to me that I first became familiar with Ben Mendelsohn when I was living in Australia. He started out as a he's Australian. He started out as a child actor on, you know, some goofy sitcoms and the like. That's hard to picture. And he really made this interesting adult comeback in the fantastic Australian film Animal Kingdom, um, which they've made an American TV show of. Haven't watched it yet. Because um, I haven't seen the movie yet. But I highly recommend the movie. So good. And he's he's chilling in that. He's absolutely amazing. And um, from then on, he's just sort of ended up in this series of fairly darker roles. Sometimes he's the wisecracking buddy, but mostly he's the sociopath. Um, and he's equally good at doing both. I mean, he's good at, at you know, chilling you to the bone one minute and cracking you up the next. Um so it, it's so interesting. I mean, to me, it's the equivalent of like, I don't know, like Macaulay Culkin or David Faustino, like eventually becoming a middle-aged guy and being in these roles. That is strange to consider. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble picturing him as a child actor, but okay. <laughs> we can look him up on the internet. It's, okay. it's weird. Yeah. I oh, do we have that? We, That's good. Uh, well, uh, we just got it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We got we got a whole like fourteen four connection. A fourteen four connection. Yeah. That sounds. Oh man. Oh man, it's starting. <laughs> Here comes the internet. Whoa! Oh, it's happening. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I look forward to our future. Me too. Neat. <laughs> I keep looking at the microphone and it looks like a Cylon. And it just. It is, and it's judging you. Cool. <laughs> The other thing that we talked about right after we saw the movie is one of the things we notice with droids increasingly from the original movies through the prequels to the current movies is that the droids are very powerful. All the droids we see pretty powerful, pretty knowledgeable, um, and very sassy. And they're frequently questioning their place in the hierarchy of their world. Like, they're like, well, I know all this. And, like, I could have done this better than you. Like, why am I following a human around? Da, 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 da. And especially with K2SO, like, it seemed like he was fine and subservient to humans. And even, you know, quite loyal to them. Um, but he was quite obviously more powerful and knowledgeable than the humans he was accompanying. And I was saying to Bill after we saw the movie, I was like... At what point does the Star Wars universe have a droid rebellion, have a robot rebellion, this whole ascendance to, this AI ascendance to consciousness, because they certainly have sapience. Um, At what point did they decide, like, fuck this? Like, you know, when do we have our our Cylon rebellion in in the Star Wars universe or our, you know. Oh, crossover. (laughs) Because I feel like it's been long overdue. And certainly... I, the argument could be made that there's quite enough going on in the Star Wars universe between the movies, the TV shows, and the novels um, that we don't need to throw in a droid rebellion on top of all Maybe of that. Maybe the Cylon's god is the Force. <sighs> well, this is the other thing we were talking about, right? We we don't we don't have it because the Force governs all living things, right? It governs all life. We don't have any evidence, therefore, that any non-living but sentient sapient creature could be manipulated by the force beyond just having their machinery fucked up. Like having, having an energy short being broken. So conceivably you could have, if you had a sufficiently advanced droid race, 
they couldn't be so easily manipulated by simple like oh here's a wire i can snip you know if they had something like a neural net and cloud consciousness and and you know infinitely replicable structures um similar to the cyclones in battlestar then arguably the force as far as we know couldn't manipulate them in terms of jedi mind tricks so who's to so what could stop them that's probably i mean what i was saying in the car that's probably why they exist that because you know as a check to the power of the jedis so this makes me wonder then now that there are fewer jedis right or just in general like as the civilization continues to advance and as the types of droids advance with them as we've seen they they become much more technologically advanced in a very short period of time from the prequels to now aren't we inevitably heading toward a a sapient and conscious ai and droid rebellion watershed point maybe i guess it, it, it depends because to have a rebellion the droids need to want something they aren't getting i think that for me the immediate thought i have there is that their entire human ruled world is governed by this fight between good and evil the dark side of the force versus the light side of the force droid don't care droid don't care about that shit seem to they seem to in that they're faithful to whoever whichever of their master is on that side or, or the other but masterless droids need not be governed by such distinctions yeah yeah i apologize in advance if i foment any robot rebellions <laughs> i'm just saying if i were a droid i would be like i don't need this fucking shit i could kill all of you immediately i don't need to worry about your force your force is, has no relevance to me i'm not i'm not a living creature i'm right. consciousness but i i'm conscious but i'm not living right right so i don't need this fucking bullshit I'll take over your planets. Your planets are mine now. Well, maybe there is something they need that, that is being provided by, like, maybe they're yeah. not self-sufficient. Yeah. I don't know. But you but think that they could, you see, to, like, C-3PO fixing up and modding all these other other droids? Yeah. I'm just saying, the seeds are there. I think droids, for the most part, can repair other droids. Yeah. 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 The seeds are all there for an, a droid to AI rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write it. I don't mind. <laughs> Just give me one bag of money and I will do it. I was going to say, do we have some fanfic in the works here? No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was a tangent, but it's very important to me. No, I think it's germane to to what's going on in the world of Star Wars. It's germane. And the issues. Do we have anything else to say about Rogue One? Do you have any other? Uh, no, good movie. Yeah liked it good movie two <laughs> thumbs up we both approve yeah that's probably enough for this podcast yeah this episode yeah we're done we haven't decided what we're going to talk about in the next episode we got a lot of ideas or how frequent they will be or how frequent they will be our email address should you wish to communicate with us is apostrophe podcast at gmail.com and if you can't spell apostrophe then you can't write to us <laughs> that's a low bar <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, it's a good one, but it's a, it's a low bar. <laughs> You'd be surprised on this internet of ours. Our 14.4 Our 14.4 internet. internet. Yeah. <laughs> so that's apostrophe podcast at gmail.com if you want to write to us and yeah. tell us 
why our opinions are bad and wrong. No, or, not for that. No, don't, no, no. We or, don't need to hear that. We don't care about that. Just let us know uh, if there's anything you want to talk about or that you'd like us to respond to. Yeah, we, or whatever. We'll, or whatever. We'll, we'll read it. Maybe. Maybe. All right. She will. <laughs> she will. <laughs> Someone will. <laughs> Your mom. <laughs> Your mom will. All right. I think that's it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, mailbox. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> <laughs>